Well, I know this, and anyone who's ever tried to live knows this. So what you say about somebody else, you know, anybody else, reveals you. What I think of you as being is dictated by my own necessities, my own psychology, my own um, fears and desires. I'm not describing you when I talk about you. I'm describing me. Now, here in this country, we've got something called a nigger. It doesn't, in such terms, I beg you to remark, exist in any other country in the world. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent him. White people invented him. I've always known, I had to know by the time I was 17 years old, what you were describing was not me, and what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of, and you invested me with it. Now, that's so. No matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known, you know, and really always, that's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? I am not the victim here. I know one thing from another. I know I'm going to born and I'm... I'm going to be, you know, I was born, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And the only way you get through a life is to know the worst things about it. I know that a person is more important than anything else. Anything else. I learned this because I've had to learn it. But you still think, I gather, that the nigger is necessary. Well, it's unnecessary to me, so it must be necessary to you. I'll give you your problem back. You're the nigger, baby. It isn't me. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and a secret proceedings. Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now. Public Access America.
I'll tell you a story, if I may. Many years ago, when I first came to London, uh, I was in the British Museum, naturally. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the West Indians who worked there started a conversation with me and wanted to know where I was from. And I told him I was from Holland. And that answer didn't satisfy him. And I didn't understand what he meant. I was born in Harlem. I was born in Harlem Hospital, I said. Uh, I was born in New York. None of these answers satisfied him. He said, where was your mother born? And I said, she was born in Maryland. And I could see, though I didn't understand it, that he was going more and more disgusted with me. He was so became more and more impatient. And where was your father born? My father was born in New Orleans. Yes, he said, but man, where were you born? And then I began to get it. You know, I said, well, I said, my mother was born in Maryland, my father was born in New Orleans, I was born in New York. He said, but before that, where were you born? <laughs> and I had to say, I don't know. And I could see that he did not believe me. And I tried to explain, you know, um, there's no way for me. He said, don't you care not to find out? And I tried to explain that if I were original, originally from Dakar, from uh, wherever I was in Africa, I couldn't find out where it was because my entry into America is a bill of sale. And that stops, you know, that stops you from going any further. At some point in, the, in, the, in our history, I became um, Baldwin's nigger. That's how I got my name. Now, you know, that really cannot be considered, you know, my fault. It can't be considered the fault of the cat in the British Museum either that I don't, that he doesn't know that I can't find that out. And I tell you that story to dramatize the nature of the, the distance created, created deliberately. Because when I became Baldwin's nigger, it's also very important to point out, I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. We would have had, in short, um, a kind of solidarity, which is a kind of identity, which might have allowed us, uh, which might have made the history of slavery very different. History of slavery in, in the North American continent, I mean. Well, that didn't happen, and here we are. One of the most terrible things, well, one of the most difficult things, because it is something which one has, it wants to resist, as he has said, and also to use, is that in fact, whether I like it or not, I am an American. Now, that is not, I'm not Lyndon Johnson, and I'm not saying that as, you know, I am an American. I don't mean that, no. <laughs> Alas, I mean something very different. <laughs> but I do mean that I was formed in a certain crucible. That my school really was the streets of New York City. My frame of reference was um, George Washington and John Wayne. No. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was a child, you know, and the child opens his eyes in the world, he has to use what he sees. There's nothing else to use. And you are formed by what you see, the choices you have to make, and the way you discover what it means to be black in New York. I don't know how you discover what it means to be black in London, but I know what it means, how you discover that in New York, and then throughout the entire country.
And I know how, as you grow older, you watch in the richest city in the world, you know, and the most, the most famous, the richest, freest nation in the world, <laughs> in the Western world, I know how you watch as you grow older, literally, and this is not a figure of speech, the corpses of your brothers and your sisters pile up around you, and not for anything they have done. They were too young to have done anything, in any case, too helpless. But what one does realize is that when you try to stand up and look the world in the face like you had a right to be here, when you do that, without knowing that this is the result of it, you have attacked the entire power structure of the Western world. If I one fine day discover that I have been lied to all the years of my life, and my mother and my father were being lied to, if I discover that in fact, though I was bred and bought and sold like a mule, but I never really was a mule, if I discover that I was never really happy picking all that cotton and digging in all those mines to make other people rich. And if I discover that those songs the darkies sang and sing were not just the innocent expressions of a primitive people, but extremely subtle and difficult, dangerous and tragic expressions of what it felt like to be in chains. Then by one's presence, simply, and by the attempt to walk from here to there, you've begun to frighten the white world. They have always known that you were not a mule. They have always known that no one wishes to be a slave. They have always known the bales of cotton and the, and the textile mills and entire metropolises built on black labor. But the black was not doing it out of love. He was doing it under the whip. The threat of the, the, threat of the gun and the even more desperate and subtle threat of the Bible. Now, then, one is watching, according to me, in the streets of Southeast Asia. What must be considered is a final act of the white Christian European industrial drama. Speaking as an American and reading the news and looking at the pictures, the streets of Saigon resemble nothing so much to me as the streets of Detroit. And in both cities, precisely the same war is being waged. That war may yet spread 
to engulf the, the globe. And let's speak plainly. We know, everybody knows, no matter what the professions of my unhappy country may be, that we are not bobbing people out of existence in the name of freedom. If we were freedom we were concerned about, then long, long ago we would have done something about Johannesburg, South Africa. If we were concerned with freedom, boys and girls would not, as I stand here, be perishing in the streets of Harlem. We are concerned with power, nothing more than that. And most unluckily for the Western world, it has consolidated its power on the backs of people who are now going to die rather than be used any longer. In short, the economic arrangements of the Western world proved to be too expensive for most of the world. And the Western world will change these arrangements. All these arrangements will be changed for them. This is what is beneath all the rhetoric and all those rather shameful speeches coming from my president. <clears throat> this imposes on us, then, a very considerable burden. I, for example, do have, in principle at least, the choice of, um, how can I put it, becoming a good American. I can make a living, at least I could. Uh, I'm well enough known to be an ornament. Uh, in short, I could ally myself on the side of what I most seriously consider to be a criminal nation. But if I can't do that, then I have to examine all the reasons that I can't and find out in myself precisely the terms of my connection with other people. When it's tried, I tried for a long time, in my own person, in, you know, in things I wrote and things I said. I don't mean that I was alone, but I'm using myself as an example. To convey to my countrymen, white and black, the nature of our danger and where we were going to go if we could not resolve the situation in our cities and in our streets, in our houses, if brother could not deal with brother because on the American continent, they talk about the color problem, but the truth is that no white American is sure he's white. <laughs> and every American Negro visibly is no longer an African. And we know what happened and we know who had the whip. So it was not my grandmother who raped anybody. <laughs> Well, if the day comes when you realize, and you don't want to realize it, that you cannot make yourself heard, that um, the people whom you are addressing are plea for them and for you, on the plea is a very simple one. It's saying, look at it. Forget all the mountains of nonsense that have been written and everything has been said. Forget the Negro problem. Don't write any voting acts. We had that. It's called the 15th Amendment. We're in the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. 
What you have to look at is what is happening in this country. And what is really happening is a brother has murdered brother knowing it was his brother. White men have lynched Negroes knowing them to be their sons. White women have had Negroes burned knowing them to be their lovers. It is not a racial problem. It's a problem whether or not you're willing to look at your life and be responsible for it and then begin to change it. That great Western house I come from is one house. And I am one of the children of that house. Simply, I'm the most despised child of that house. And it is because the American people are unable to face the fact that, in fact, I am flesh of their flesh, bone of their bone, created by them. My blood, my father's blood is in that soil. They can't face that. And that is why the city of Detroit went up in flames. And that is why the city of Saigon was under martial law. I know that in 400 years in that house, they do not know who I am, and I cannot marry their daughters or go to their churches. I would have to be a much more stupid man than I am to believe they know anything at all about those people in the Asian jungles. According to me, they liberated me before they got around to Asia, and it was liberation difficult to bear. Many didn't survive it. It seems to me, though, that we, the greatest difficulty that we face is, first of all, to excavate our actual history. And I am part of the history which occurred in the Caribbean. And you are part of the history which occurred in Harlem. And one's got to find the terms. One's got to accept that and find out how to use that. And one has got to decide, I think, that the actual and the moral basis on which the world we know now rests, are obsolete, must be changed. Insofar as they're obsolete, they are wicked. Insofar as they're obsolete, they are oppressive. It is simply not conceivable that for another 500 years, or 200 years, or 100 years, that the blacks of South Africa, for example, should live and die in the mines being treated like animals to make other people rich. That is simply not the civilization which is doing this, by doing this, dooms itself. It is not possible to agree with it, nor is it possible to compromise with it. Freedom is not, freedom is a much, much overused word. And it may not be as real as slavery, which is a very concrete thing. But freedom is what one's after. And as it cannot, I suppose, be given, then it obviously must be taken. There are many ways to take it. But before we can discover this, we have to discover how to reunite ourselves to 
the terms on which we can speak to each other, the terms in which, in fact, to put it bluntly, we can plot against the master. And lest anyone misunderstand me, I'm not really talking about color. I'm not talking about race. I don't really believe in race. I don't really believe in color. But I do know what I see. I do know that in, in the very same way that the American Negro situation menaced everybody in the country, and now it is visible. What happened in Detroit is, is perfectly logical, and the lesson is plain. What happened says, if I can't live in this city, you can't live in this city either. When a city goes under martial law, everybody in the city is under martial law. If I can't walk out and buy a loaf of bread safely, neither can the housewife. That's why he's on the, on the range learning how to shoot a pistol in the land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> They're confusing themselves with the Indians, you know. They're back at the wagon train. But we all know who's in the streets of America. We know who, to whom we are referring when we talk about crime in the streets. We know the son of the president of Pan Am is not in the streets. Only one person in the streets, that's me. And they're plotting to shoot me in the name of freedom, dignified by law. And I'm supposed to agree. I'm supposed to agree. No, 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 sir. I won't be disorderly no more. Alas, the party's over. The question is, what shall we do? Everyone knows that the question's in everybody's lap, from Washington to London. Bond. Everybody knows it. They're trying to figure out what to do. We should figure out what to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now you're supposed to talk to me. <laughs> now I'll sit down. Why do you call him a Negro? Why don't you just call him a black man? There is no country of the Negro, do you know that? <laughs> yes, I'm aware of that. Well, so why do you call him Negro and not black man? Can I try to explain that? Yes, you can. <laughs> Listen. It was not I, nor any black man, in America, who invented the word Negro. It's not I who wrote that on my birth certificate. It's not I who invented that language. I understand the purpose of your question. And indeed, there is no country called Negro. I know that. But you must understand, too, that I cannot change my vocabulary overnight. I may agree with you. But we've called, we've been called and have called ourselves American Negroes for oh, nearly 400 years. Now, do you suppose that because it angers you, uh, suddenly an entire nation is able to change its vocabulary? In any case, I just trust the emphasis on the vocabulary, you know. Your generation, not mine, will call itself black. That's good enough for me. That's the whole point. My mother, my, my mother's mother, called herself a nigger. 
You must understand the nature of oppression, the most subtle effect of oppression, is that what it does to your mind, what it does to the way you think about yourself, the whole cornerstone rests there. If you understand that, then you can see, I think, that even though my mother's mother called herself a nigger, she managed to raise a family and instill somehow into her children some sense, some dignity, which did not depend on the word. One had to learn how to use those terms in order to survive and even to triumph. Now, in view of the situation that is um, really now happening, that is gone past, how do you envisage the black man's personality, say, within 50 years? I'm asking you kind of just to, you know, um, try to see what you can tell me about. In 50 years, yeah. Within 50 years. <laughs> That's a reckless question, but I'll try to give, I'll try to give a reckless answer. <laughs> I don't know if this is so. I'll tell you what I would like and what I hope. I think that black people, you know, that the black experience, let's put it this way, and I'm deliberately trying to distinguish the black experience from the Christian, the white Christian European experience. It seems to me that the black personality then has a kind of vigor, a kind of vitality, and a kind of uh, uh, a sense of life, of uh, something which does not come from here, but comes from much deeper regions. I think the African personality is not so compartmentalized. I think that Europeans, the European personality, in the main. And this implies a, a very severe judgment of Christianity. A very severe judgment is not an indictment. I think that they are terribly worried about the flesh, the senses. Uh, I think they live in checks and balances which are really very nearly pathological. And you see them in, in relief in America. Because in America, in America, I precisely am the flesh which the Christians must mortify. Now, according to me, and what I hope for in the future, the flesh is all you have. If you mortify that, there's no hope for you. Everything you find out, you find out through your senses. Everything that, everything awful that happens to you, and everything marvelous that happens to you, happens to you in this frame, this tenement, this mortal envelope, which is, which should be, instead of beating it with chains, and, and hammering nails through it and hanging it on crosses. It should be the celebration, your life, your body. And if that concept comes back into the world, it will come back only through the black people have been submerged so long. And that will change not only the black personality, but that will change the world. I've seen janitors, black janitors in overalls, prouder than any English king, with a much more real pride. And that is what I would like to see. Anyway, the change in the personality will come about in that direction, because as, as one begins to come out of the mines and strike off the chains, by some miracle, what was nearly murdered in Africa is still there. Human energy cannot be destroyed. And that's what's coming back. Is that somewhere in um, one of your books? 
quite contemptuously, I thought, that um, you thought it irrelevant to trace your roots back to some African village. You said somewhere in one of your books, quite contemptuously, I thought, that you, um, you thought it irrelevant to trace your roots back to some African no. village. Uh, from what you said here tonight, have you moved away from that position? I'm far from certain I ever said that. <laughs> no. I might have, but I very much doubt it. You said that you thought it unnecessary to trace your roots back to Africa. I think you're talking about an essay called Stranger in the Village. I was making a comparison between the day the Europeans arrived in my African village, you know, and what they thought of me and what I thought of them. And I was not being contemptuous at all. At all. I was saying this is what happened. And I have to look at, look at it that way. This is, but this is what happened. When they had Beethoven, Bach, and all of these things, and the Christian faith and the cross, and all those horses and guns and boats, I was perfectly happy in Africa watching a conqueror arrive. <laughs> it was an examination for myself of my history. And, and certainly not meant to be contemptuous. We from the West Indies, you may or may not understand. Because we are, we are British. We are West British, I mean, a British colony. We even call it... Bird. What? Quiet, quiet. Quiet, <laughs> I mean, call it, call it British diplomacy if you wish, but we obviously, or as far as I can see, look at the color problem <coughs> differently to the American Negro. Now that we are in England, these are all of other people, but now that I am in England, I'm very glad that I came to England because I am more aware of the fact I'm a Negro. In Jamaica, I wasn't aware of the fact because it's very cosmopolitan. And in Jamaica, we, I don't know if you've ever been told it, we more have a shade problem. Than a anyway, the point I want to get across is I never knew, really knew I was a, a real Negro till I came to England. I know now, that's why I'm here. And I'm very honored, I was here the other night, Mr. Gregory, Dick rather. And <laughs> I don't see that there is necessarily um, any division between them. Let, 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 me take, let me take black power first. Yeah. And generation later. Um, black power is a very simple phrase. And I don't know why everyone gets upset about black power. One's watching the effect of white power all over the, all over the world. You know? yeah. And no one, even, no one even questions it. No. no one even questions the white power which is now destroying thousands of women, men and women and children in, 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 in Vietnam. That, that power, because it is power, is sacred. Yeah. No one, no one, no one questions the power of the bank of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> the term black power, you know, strikes terror into many people's minds because it implies precisely the overthrow of the bank of the Holy Ghost. At least they think so. 
And it does actually mean that. What it means is that black people, this is all it means, that black people have in their own hands the control of their own destinies. That is all it means. The English have a great phrase for it. They're very proud of the phrase. It's called the self-determination of peoples. That's all it means. As for integration, that is not our goal. No, no at all. That is precisely is our problem. Uh, it's a very simple question. <laughs> Do you think that, um, that there is any place for the white liberal in the black and when you answer this question, would you be kind enough to give the reasons? Because I've attended a lot of meetings on the subject of black power, at which, at which in particular English people feel very hurt because you get the line from, say, the platform, we don't want you. Could you give me the benefit of your thoughts on this? I suppose the word liberal refers to a political tradition coming out of the north of Europe, you know, and finding its roots, you know, or whatever, its bases in England and in America. But to my ear, as a black man, a white liberal is immediately suspect because it is indistinguishable, and one has got to face this, you might as well say white missionary, because that's the association. And it is also, alas, very often, not always, but very, very often, the role and the effect. But deeper than that, more important than that, there's also this, that from an historical point of view, no matter how miserable my situation is. From an historical point of view, at this hour of the world's history, I have an advantage over you because I'm compelled, I'm speaking about myself as a black man, not as... I'm compelled to doubt my history, to examine it. I'm compelled to try to create it. I'm trying to excavate my history from all the rubble that has buried it for so many hundreds of years. And that means I have to question everything. Whereas the white liberal is in precisely opposite position of being, in the main, unwilling as well as unable to examine the forces which have brought him to where he is, which have created him, in fact, to, uh, to make, which must be very difficult, that to, to, to know, that quite apart from whatever his own attitudes, aspirations, morality, may, whatever they may be, he is nevertheless, whether or not he likes it, a part of the people, he is part of the people who at this very hour are jailing some black boy in Mississippi, who at this very hour are whipping some black African slave, you know, who at this very hour are perpetrating those tremendous enormities against a grand group of people who look like me. And furthermore, that um, his, I hate to use this word, but in a sense, that innocence, that innocence can be, in crucial moments, a very grave danger. It can menace much, much more than the white liberal can imagine. At, you see, you can't, after all, I've, I, my brothers, let us say, you know, my family, let's, say, let's put it that way, have forged, out of our own experience, ways of talking to each other, way, you know, and, and we can deal with each other like that because we, the same things happen to us. You know, I haven't got to explain this thing to my brother David. No, we just look at each other, not even look at each other, we both know. You know, we both know. 
Now, you can't, in some moments, you don't have the time to explain to somebody else. You know, that's how we got that spiritual called steal away. It's not about stealing away to Jesus. <laughs> it's a timetable, you know. Somebody's, somebody's splitting, you know, and we know what to do because we know he's leaving. He's stealing away. You can't always explain that. And the last one's got to face this. One's got to face this. That um, in many, many, many black power meetings, you know, some of the most eminent liberals turned out to be working for the CIA. You know? <laughs> now, it's true, too, on the other hand, that many, you know, many black people were also working for the CIA. But you, in this context, you, the white liberal, in this context, suffer from your color, exactly as I suffer from my color in, in, a, in another and more brutal context. And one suddenly got to face that. If one can face it, one can deal with it, and, and then it doesn't matter. But I don't think it serves any purpose to get one's feelings hurt. Because it's not a matter of my liberation, for example. It's also a matter of yours. And if you're working, if we're working together, it's not because we're going to do something for the poor black people. We're going to do something for each other to save this, this really rather frightening world. What is the present attitude of the average American Negro towards Christianity. My impression of him was one who worshipped in a Clayton Paul and my British twice a week and sing beautiful songs. Well, the bulk of the American, pop, American Negro population, this is a very complicated question to answer. I'm not sure I know, I, I know I can't do it justice tonight. The bulk of the American Negro population is Christian, or at least it thinks it is. Now, you have to when one begins to examine it, you discover that there's some very crucial differences between white Christianity and black Christianity, even in some celebrated churches, Adam Clayton Powell's church. And this is partly because, uh, to, to minimize it, to, to understate it, the church has operated in, a, in the life of the American Negro, who was once, you know, the black African slave, as his only, his only forum, his own, the only place where he was relatively free. And it is also the place in which he was able to act out, to sing out, to dance out his pride and his terrors and his desire for revenge. All those sermons are bloodthirsty and they're not talking about devils and Samson and Delilah, any of those things. They're talking about the master. There's a song which says it's supposed to be about Samson. And the, and the master thought it was about Samson, only now he's been to think it was about something else. Man says, the slave says, if I had my way, if I had my way, I'd tear this building down. That sounds like a very happy, innocent church song. It's lethal. <laughs> <laughs> and the, Ameri the American black Christian is becoming more and more aware of, what, of the real content of his Christianity, which is not the content of the Church of England. It has been one of the instruments of our salvation one of the techniques of our salvation. And now we know it. So whether one is a Christian at that point, I don't know. It doesn't matter, since one knows how to use what one's history is. Uh, you're going to stop Christian kindly, and uh, we're going to have a few words from Dick Quick. Yeah. Um, too much to say, but I'm just very glad that I was able to be here tonight with my brother James. And uh, you're a very groovy speaker, man. I know that. <laughs> 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 you know, yeah. 
since you got in show business, I guess I got to go home and write me another book. <laughs> I, uh, I have enjoyed very well uh, listening and, uh, and watching. And uh, as Jim made a very important point that when you create an action, a writer have to watch and then come up and write on the action. And I think this is this is very important uh, when we read uh, uh, works of a of a social writer like this. I uh, I observed you, the audience here tonight, which has uh, uh, been very interesting. For instance, the the fellow who's gone now, who who, who questioned why we in America call ourselves Negroes and not blacks, and well. Here in this country, you refer to yourself as coloreds. <laughs> and, 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 and so I think we, we got to understand that like, like all of us is put in the same trick. You know, in America, they charge me more money for automobile insurance, and they will never admit that in the Negro neighborhoods, they have poor lighting on the streets and bad streets and small streets and overcrowded conditions, so I have more cars per acre than white folks have, so naturally I got more accidents per acre than white folks have. <laughs> but in here, as me and my brother was discussing today, they charge you more for license because they say you're a bad driver, and then turn around and 60% of the bus drivers is black. <laughs> and so how you could never understand how he gets by with some of his stuff <laughs> we can't understand how here he gets back. In, uh, in closing, let me say this. And uh, vaguely answer the gentleman's question here uh, about white liberalism. Uh, we're getting to a point now where we are getting kind of sassy and kind of belligerent. And, and you know, it's just like a game. Life is a game, you know. Uh, you played baseball when you was a kid, and you say, okay, it, let me hit a couple. You know? <laughs> and, you know, like black folks that have gone to wars in what I call white man's armies, without black folks being at the top echelon. In America, there's no black people in the Pentagon, and they send us to battle. And we have gone for years without questioning where he was sending me or why I was going. And now we're saying, okay, white folks, it's your turn. You know, I'm going to be the general, and you're going to be the private. <laughs> this is the way you're going to march. When you get through marching over there, you're going to come back here, I might pay you, and I might not. <laughs> So what we're really trying to say is black, we say we don't want no white liberals. That's right. You know, because, you see, the word white liberals is an unconscious racist statement because nobody's ever admitted that we got black liberals, who's far more worse than white liberals. <laughs> <laughs> and we also say we don't want them in the movement. You see, uh, a, a, a black liberal in America is the colored doctor that when we demonstrate that say we shouldn't, but after we finish, he becomes the first colored public health commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And so we say in that, can you come with us and cease being white? Cease, we need bodies. And we need cats that think black regardless of how white you are. Because you see, I have run across Negroes who's much lighter and act more whiter than you. And so I have to take their word for them if I can't take their attitude. And when I was in show business and people asked me, what percentage of white folks do you think is laughing at your humor because they are guilty? And my answer to them was, I cannot look at a cat and just because he's light and look white, assume that he's white. Because he might not be a white cat and be laughing without a damn thing to be guilty of. <laughs> and so what we're really saying is that black power and we don't want white folks in the movement. You see, white is not a color, it's an attitude. Black is not a color. So the whitest white cat with, you know, Father Grappi proved this. In, in Milwaukee, uh, the, the most strongest black nationalist that's, that's ever lived in modern times was not in Africa, or not Malcolm X, was a, a white cat in America named John Brown. Because John Brown caught some wrongdoing white folks and told his son, who was also white, to kill him for what they've done to my brother. And his son said, I can't do it, Daddy. And he said, if you don't kill them, I will kill you. Now, I don't know a black cat yet, man that's ready to wipe out his family because of somebody that's wrong with me. And so, and, so, and so this whole thing we talking about has nothing to do with color at all, man. It has something to do with an attitude. But now we shift in color. See, in China, if you go to a funeral dressed in a black outfit, you'd probably be stoned because in China, white represent death. <laughs> as hip as I am in the civil rights movement and as many things as I know uh, from a layman's standpoint, I've had a very brilliant education tonight uh, listening to you. And I want to thank you. Hey, Petey, have you heard about this new podcast, Public Access America? You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and even the Stitcher Smart Radio app. It's so cool. Not good enough. But are you a German spy? Because that's not with my technology. It's like that new thing, the radio, or a newspaper for your ears. You can even follow their production company, Jar Codes, on Twitter or Facebook and find all new episodes posted every day. Oh, that's cool. I don't care nothing about no planes, but I gotta hear the latest episode of Public Access America now. Oh, watch the bomb. You can even go to their YouTube channel at Public Access America and find great videos from Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.